they're talking about loneliness, loneliness. loneliness. as the, the greatest health uh, threat. Yeah. How a, a lonely person has more heart uh, damage from their loneliness than somebody who smokes a pack of please, cigarettes please, a day. Please don't tell me that. That's heartbreaking to hear. We are made for social connection. Yeah. We are profoundly made for social connection. That's what each of these neuroscientists discovers. I, I really want to come back to grief in the workplace. And I think in, in studying with you and in learning from you, I came to this realization in one moment that burnout actually stems from unmourned grief. Yes. And the, the more that our leaders can model for us and the more that our co-workers also yeah. have integrated grief, yeah. where they're going, dang, I'm sad about this, and then keeping going, because that's resilience, is like stopping to nod, take, take account of, take, acknowledge what's true, and then moving forward with the best possible way forward. Yeah. We are back. We are back for episode two. We are continuing the conversation. Last, uh, in the last episode that we, you and I met and chatted, um, we talked about many, 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 many things. But where we left off was the circuits. Yes. And that's where I'd love to go with you today and to continue this conversation. Because now I want to really dive into workplace behavior. Okay and organizations, mm. and to really support workforces in creating resonant culture. You know, we talk about creating cultures of belonging, um, but for me, creating cultures of belonging is creating resonant culture. In fact, I'm offering uh, a new course called Building Resonance in Times of Crisis, which you have so graciously offered to support and co-create and co-design with me in level two and co-facilitate, which is going to be amazing. So bringing us back to Jak Pongsep's work yes. in affective neuroscience yes. and his body of research, which is the circuits of emotion and motivation. We talked about all of the different circuits last time. We talked about the seeking circuit, which is on the left hemisphere or in the left hemisphere. And then we moved over to the right hemisphere and we talked about all of the emotionality you know, the disgust circuit, the fear, fear, rage, rage, panic, grief, care, play, sexuality. So what I'd love to do now is, is, is do a deeper dive into each of the circuits, starting with the left, the seeking circuit, which is our motivational circuit. It's, our, it's where performance is, yeah. where engagement is, right? Absolutely. Um, and then start to go through and, and, and tie in all of, the, all of the wonderful things about each of the circuits. The seeking circuit is... Uh, is largely the left hemisphere. There are some things that show up on the right. So it's not, again, it's not that, you know, oversimplification of 100% here and 100% there. Um, but it's run by dopamine. Mm -hmm. And and it is our get things done. It's our delivery yeah. circuit, you well, know, like productivity. That. It's the foundation of everything else. Everything needs seeking for any movement to happen. So if mm. we're afraid, we need seeking to be helping us to get the heck out of there. 
If we're angry, we need seeking to be helping us move with our with our expression of love and rage. Mm-hmm. If we're um, if mm. we're in panic grief, we need seeking to help us integrate and move and mourn. Mm. So seeking is like the thing that gives everything else motion. If Gallup says that sixty eight percent of the workforce is disengaged, yes. If McKinsey says something very similar, yes. Engagement happens in the seeking circuit. Well, I would say that engagement is a full 100% all-circuit activity. Ah. (laughs) Wow. Yes. Because everything else gives seeking meaning. And we can't have engagement without meaning. I mean, that's what's missing. So this is when my contribution matters. Yes. This is when I'm being appreciated for my contribution. Yes, and you can see its results, yes. This is when I'm able to receive feedback and reflect. Yes. This is when I'm able to hold boundaries and set limitations. As long as they're meaningful, yes. Yes. In the service of, yes. Yeah, Yeah, wow. This is when I'm able to show empathy. This is where I'm able to be resonant. This is where we get to and integrate resonance into the workplace because that's what brings all the circuits to life and that's what gives us full engagement workforces. So I'm going to hopefully not too much um, dampen your enthusiasm (laughs) right now. (laughs) So sorry. Um, I remember you talking about depression. Yes. And... This was a long time ago. I think one of your very early webinars that I attended where I remember you saying that depression occurs when the seeking circuit is blocked. It does, but we just had Douglas Watt come on Mm. and work for us uh, two years ago and do an amazing talk about depression and the work of Yak Pongsep. Douglas Watt was Yak Pongsep's major co-researcher and fellow writer. Mm. So... He's a living voice in the world of effective neuroscience, which is magical to have mm. Yakponcep's work and thought being continued into the present time. Yeah. And what he said about depression adds an element to our understanding to what I had yeah. the, the, yeah, uh, yeah, those please. many years ago. So I'll, I'll, I'll see if I can describe this very quickly. Depression, he says, mm-hmm. is the collapse state that comes after we have had so much alarmed aloneness oh that my God. we move into metabolic exhaustion. Oh, my God. And metabolic exhaustion from alarmed aloneness will kill us, so we need to stop the metabolic exhaustion from alarmed aloneness, so we switch into this other state, which is a depression state, which is actually saving us from the death from alarmed aloneness and metabolic exhaustion. So... And if we put the seeking in there, it's like we're seeking, seeking, seeking for connection, for care, for relationship, for meaning, for engagement. It's not happening. It's blocked. Ah. So it's both things together. And those many years ago, I didn't have that full picture with the integration of the panic grief. I mean, this just opens up so much. Yes. <laughs> this is why I love talking to you. 
I'm completely deviating, going down a tangent here. Sure. Learned helplessness. Well, learned helplessness is the collapse state that's saving us from metabolic exhaustion. The contingency, the number one contingency for learned helplessness, according to Martin Seligman, is uncontrollability. Yeah. The path out of learned helplessness is, in fact, controllability. You know, in some of the man, uh, animal research, it also seems to be agency. Like, th- this may be exactly what Martin Seligman is saying, but, but, but there's something about disconnecting the sense that everything is hopeless. Exactly. Yeah. And it, so, so he, the definition of hope is a combination of willpower and way power. Mm. Willpower, to your point, is exactly that agency, mm-hmm. which I'm going to tie back to the rage circuit mm. and the power chakra. Mm-hmm. I'm getting very emotional. Mm. And way power is the pathways to the goal. Mm. So I have the agency and I see a path forward. Mm. This is the collective definition of hope, Uh right? When I'm in this collapsed state, how do I start to access agency? How do I start to access and and be able to see my my path forward? Where's my way power? Where's Mm. my willpower? Mm You know, I often think about this, and my sense of the movement out of that collapsed state is very similar to what um, Judith Herman writes about trauma. She writes that one of the, the contributors to experiences of trauma is um, a sense of helplessness, and that what she finds when she researches different trauma survivors of the same trauma is that the ones for whom grace gave them a sense that that at taking action was possible end up with much less PTSD than the ones who uh, didn't didn't have that happen. So an incredible example of this is something that you he- here in California may still remember, though it happened when I was a child, I think, it was the time when the bus was uh, the bus full of children was kidnapped and driven into a mountain. Do you remember that one? Oh, was there a movie made of this? There probably was. She says that the, there was one boy in the back the, whose window was partially open, and some crumbs of dirt fell on him from the window. And those crumbs of dirt gave him the idea oh that goodness. maybe they could open the window and shovel dirt into the bus and begin to create a possible escape route. And indeed, that's what they did. And he was the child who ended up with the least amount of trauma. And it happened not because he was uh, more morally upstanding or more resilient or stronger. It happened because of grace, because he was hit by this dirt, and it gave him the idea. So there when, is... When you say grace, are you talking about like fortuitousness? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So if we think about that in, those, in, in the collapse state, mm-hmm. that something finds its way through. I once read a wonderful book wow. by a woman who discovered 
that vacuuming made her feel better when she was depressed, <laughs> that she got this marvelous vacuum. That, and when she vacuumed, it, it, she could turn the dirt out of the vacuum. It was like her, her sense of agency was reawakened just by this fortuitous vacuum discovery. And, and so she comes to mind for me as well. And there's a double, there's a, a double thing that has to happen, I think, to, for recovery from depression. Part of it is being awakened to possibility. And it can be taking a class like, like our classes, mm-hmm. where people go, oh, exactly. I'm, I'm in a collapsed state because of metabolic exhaustion. And they can begin to even say to themselves and to their depression, thank you for saving me from death. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you, system, mm-hmm. which is very unusual because mm-hmm. mostly people who are being depressed are told that they're supposed to be mean to themselves or yell at themselves or, you know. But instead to say, oh, this is a, this is a, this is a saving place. This isn't a, a factor of me being weak or de- defective. This is a result of... A, 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 of a level of alarmed aloneness that is so profound that I've ended up here. So that's like dirt falling on us, is the wonderful miracle of happening into Rajkumari and Yogi's classes and going, oh, I make sense. Yeah. And then the next part is a little bit of remedy for the alarmed aloneness. Mm. A little bit of holding, a little bit of acknowledgement, a little bit of accompaniment Mm -hmm. in the truth of the alarmed aloneness. Mm -hmm. So that's what's most important with depression, is beginning to understand and catch a glimpse Mm -hmm. of the way that humans can be felled by what scientists call separation distress and what I call alarmed aloneness. There is so much there. So let's slowly tease this apart here. So the in in Martin Seligman's book, he he co-wrote this book with two other um peers. I don't remember their names, and it's called The Theory of Learned, Learned Helplessness. Um there were three main neurochemical issues at play. I guess three three potential routes into learned helplessness, which was um, a decrease in norepinephrine, or a um, a decrease in endogenous benzodiazepine, or a decrease in endogenous opioids. So, what was you know what? Of course, what you can only imagine happened for me was I went to the circuits immediately and tried yes, to unpack course. that right, right, and that took me to of course the panic grief circuit. Yes. Which um, yeah. you know is profoundly relevant, right? Um, which is the endogenous opioids. It took me to the fear circuit, yes. Which is um, you know endogenous benzodiazepine, yes. Right. So much of what we talk about when I talk about uh, my course, understanding humans at work, is that that's where the psychological safety aspect happens. You know, Amy Edmondson talks about yeah. psychological safety. Uh, from her book, you know, Fearless Organization. She's a Harvard professor. I like to dive into the science of things. Yes. You and I like to do yes. that. Um, and so really understanding the fear circuit is being driven when there's a lack of of safety. Mm-hmm. And then where I got tripped up was norepinephrine. 
right? Because that, that I couldn't obviously pinpoint. But it took me to the reticular activating system in my own brain, the brainstem, where the majority of norepinephrine is, 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 is secreted, manufactured and secreted. And it brought me to the seeking circuit. I just I made, that, made that leap. Well, interestingly enough, we can find this in, uh, as we spoke about last time, we, talk, we, we talked about Ian McGilchrist's uh, mm -hmm. investigation of the left and right hemisphere. Yeah. The major transmitter for the left hemisphere is dopamine. The major transmitter for the right hemisphere is norepinephrine, noradrenaline. And so part of what we're seeing then with learned helplessness is that the entire right hemisphere goes offline. I, so where I was going, this is why I love talking to you, is when you said helplessness, I wrote down in capital letters and underscored it, unmet needs. Yes. We just talked about in the last episode how needs, feelings and needs, come from the right hemisphere and all that circuitry that Yach talks about. Yeah. So this brings us to grief in the workplace. Yes. And I want to stay with depression because when we think about mental health, depression is very relevant. Yes. And becoming more and more so. I think you did a, a presentation forever ago, but very much before COVID, where the World Health Organization at that time was saying that depression was the third cause of, uh, was it, how, do you, how do they say that, disease? Yeah. Um, about to become, in 2008, or was it 2008, 18, uh, the second. Yes. And, and, and now, post-COVID, it has to be number one. It does, doesn't it? I mean, I don't know. Loneliness. They're talking about loneliness, loneliness. loneliness. as the, the greatest health uh, threat. Yeah. And, that, and they're talking about how a, a lonely person has more heart uh, damage from their loneliness than somebody who smokes a pack of please, cigarettes please, a day. Please don't tell me that. <laughs> please, please don't tell me that. <laughs> oh, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's heartbreaking to hear. Um, that's incredible. It is. It is. We we are. This comes back uh, to to the work that we were looking at before of James Cohen, James mm -hmm. A. Cohen, that yeah. that that we are made for social connection. Yeah, we are profoundly made for social connection. That's what each of these neuroscientists discovers as they do their work. They become more and more relational yeah. because they discover that. What's most important is the social connection. And one of the beautiful things about James A. Cohen that we didn't get to mention last time is that he says, we have to admit, though, if humans have not been safe, then we're not, we're not, we're not made to feel better by their presence. So this is beautiful. This is, this is what Resma Menachem talks about, yes, right? Yes, yes. Resma Menachem talks about how bodies that are conditioned in violence actually see safety as a threat. Right. And he spends a lot of time working, you know, through somatic ab abolitionism yeah. and really getting uh, participants to, you know, be embodied in, in states yeah. of embodiment. Yeah. Um, and and, and he, says, he says this particular phrase that just melts my heart every single time, and I've actually adapted it and just, you know, 
pay him huge homage for this. Um, he says, protective, not defective. Oh, that's so beautiful. Mm. It just gives depth and breadth and compassion to unconscious contracts. Yes, 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 yes. Right. So I want to circle back to this, this, this depression piece and, 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 and really looking at you know, grief in the workplace. Yes. The panic grief circuit has a flavor of anxiety. It is one of the root causes of anxiety. And the fear circuit has... It's the other root cause of anxiety. <laughs> That's why I'm bringing it up. <laughs> so let's, let's talk a little bit about, you know, I hear about anxiety all the time. Yeah. Um, I hear less about depression just because I'm sure there's a lot of, um, you know, shame. S stigma and, and, and yeah. Stigma around that, yeah. So, um, but let's, let's dive into anxiety. Okay. So we can kind of, uh, what Patyak Pongsip did with anxiety was he would give animals that were anxious different medicines to see if they, it would help them. So he would give them. I love this. Uh, he would give them, and he would give them opiates, mm -hmm. and if they got better, then he was like, "Oh, their anxiety was a pan was panic grief anxiety was this panic grief of separation distress," and then he would give them other animals benzodiazepines. And they would calm down. They said, oh, their anxiety is on the fear circuit. Mm -hmm. But if he gave the animals who were calmed by benzodiazepines opiates, they didn't calm. And if he gave the animals who were calmed by opiates benzodiazepines, they didn't calm, which is an interesting uh, piece of information that people who are describing antidepressants often don't take into account or, or anti-anxiety medication we can know that attachment actually plays a really interesting role mm. when we begin to look at the circuits and how they function in humans. So for example, if we are, there, there are three main types of, uh, of organized attachment, and then there's disorganized attachment. Yeah. So we have secure attachment, which means, and the word attachment in this context is the prediction of how others will meet us. Mm. So if we're expecting that we're going to walk in the world and others will meet us with warmth and they'll be fairly predictable and pretty safe, then we have secure attachment. We often think about attachment as being an individual thing. It's just here, but it's actually in relationship with the world and with the people that we know and meet. Right, because another another um, kind of simplicity, simplified way of looking at it is I'm either this or this or this type of attachment. But the reality is that it's situationally based. Situationally based and nesting bowl-like. Mm. That we can be securely attached, but there can be an avoidant shell around that, and there can be an ambivalent shell around that, and there can be a little bit of disorganization. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So whenever we take attachment tests, we actually usually see ourselves with different percentage points for each different mm -hmm. kind of attachment. And, um, and each of them serve us. I mean, this comes back to Resma Menachem's statement of protective, not defective. Yeah. Our attachment styles are not defective. They are absolutely appropriate for the world that we've lived in and for what we have grown to expect based on very good historical evidence. Yeah. So a secure attachment, expecting folks to meet us and to be respectful and warm. Yeah. Avoidant attachment. Expecting ourselves to have to be alone in the world. Nobody's going to help us. We can't count on anybody else. No one else is, is going to come when we're distressed. We need to take care of ourselves. 
ambivalent attachment, then we're predicting that we need to join with other nervous systems and everybody needs to be okay for anybody to be okay. So we're predicting that joining must happen for okayness. Wow. Avoidant, we're predicting that joining must not happen for okayness. Wow. Ambivalent, joining must happen. Wow. Secure, in and out of joining. It's fine. Disorganized? Disorganized, unpredictable. <laughs> this, is the, this is the best definition of attachment I've ever heard. <laughs> this is genius. <laughs> so, so with the seeking circuit, if we start there, yeah, and we're thinking about like our, a fabulous flow of dopamine, that's what we want for the seeking circuit. We want a healthy, wonderful, replenishing you know, fuel of dopamine to be mm-hmm. flowing mm-hmm. when we're not wanting to sleep or rest or cuddle. We want to be like able to be active, able to mobilize mm-hmm. and for it to feel good. Uh, I was just looking at some research last week that was about exercising. And it turns out that those days when you feel like your exercising was crap are the days when the dopamine wasn't flowing. Mm-hmm. And the days when you're like, yeah. yeah, that was a good workout. Those are totally. dopamine days. Yeah. So dopamine is very essential for our well-being. Very attractive. <laughs> and, and so a securely attached seeking system mm-hmm. is both highly energized. Now, you may remember Daniel Siegel yeah. and his um, acronym FACES, Flexible, Adaptable, Coherent, Energized, and Stable mm. for, for secure attachment, for integration. So here we have energized. Yes, what a wonderful thing. And flexible. Oh my goodness. This means that the seeking circuit is not out. You'll remember from the last time Rajkumari and I were together driving the car without ever being able to turn around. No, that's mm. not flexible. That's inflexible. Right. That's avoidant attachment. That's a seeking circuit without everybody else helping it. So it's almost like the seeking circuit gets to be securely attached when it knows that all the other circuits will help it. Just like a person gets to be securely attached when we believe that others will be responsive to us. Yeah. So secure attachment is always the highest form of integration mm. of all of the circuits. And then as we come off secure attachment, we start to slip into, if we go into avoidant attachment Mm -hmm. with the seeking circuit, we're just running on dopamine. We start to lose meaning. The farther we go away from security into um, avoidant attachment, the more we're just marching along as little foot soldiers, Mm. trying to get things done. Not a lot of meaning. Mm. Getting the paycheck, counting the minutes. Oh my God, it's, you know, 40 minutes until lunch break. You know, mm-hmm. that's a foot soldier. Mm. And as we come farther over for the seeking circuit over into ambivalent attachment, yeah. what we begin then to see is um, the, all of the difficulties with focus that people run up against. So the distractions, the um, ADHD, the um, the the movements out of effectiveness, the the dithering, the inability to decide, the inability to make decisions. Mm-hmm. Because the seeking circuit is then looking for 
relationship, but if it's not connected to the other circuits, it can't find it. It can't find relationship. The, the more that we're, the more that we move away from security, from the integration with all the circuits, into the unsuccessful search for another nervous system that will stabilize us. And join. And join. Yeah. The, the, the less effective we are and the less pr productive we are. Wow. So as we move with seeking away from security to the left, into the left hemisphere, into avoidant detachment, we're moving away from meaning. As we move uh, on the right, we're moving away from productivity and focus. And uh, when you say left and right, are you talking about the hemisphere? You're talking about the I'm talking about the hemispheres, and, and I'm also talking about kind of a, 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 this, this a, meter. Yeah, like a, yeah. a drawing of secure attachment, yep. avoidant attachment, ambivalent attachment. Yeah, no, I totally get it. And and in that moving into the right hemisphere for anxious attachment or ambivalent attachment, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm 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 hyper vigilant in trying to find a circuit that I can connect to. Yeah, or a person. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. if 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 you're raging, I'll take that over being alone. Oh yeah. If you're fearful. I'll try to actually join you and and care for you, or be afraid with you, or be afraid with you. Yeah. If you're in panic grief mode, then I'll just mourn with you or yeah. but collapse with you. Collapse with yeah. you. Yeah. I, I I feel like these are uh, these these conversations are like mini YouTube sessions in neuroscience. I mean, they <laughs> are, but it just it just it's just it's just mind blowing. Um, and then, and then disorganized. And then disorganized. So disorganized seeking uh, comes, can come back into relationship with each of the other circuits and make it really toxic. So what would be an example of something like Disorganized that? seeking connected with rage, uh, unpredictable, rageaholism. T tant tantrums. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, um, oh seeking... Connected with unpredictable fear, uh, un the, unpredictable panic attacks. The, the, Not, the roof is falling. Yeah, yeah. The roof is falling. Yeah. What about pan what about uh, uh, disorganized seeking with uh, panic grief? Um, that's that's actually what what it turns out panic attacks are. I used the word panic attacks last time, but the roof is falling is much better for that. The panic attacks uh, actually are mostly resolved by opiates which mm -hmm. means that they're separation distress. Yeah. So panic attacks are on that, that progression downward into metabolic exhaustion that we were talking about in connection with depression. You know, I, I, I run these biology of belonging boot camps, yeah. as you know so well, and um, I, I run them at different organizations, and I was just running them. Uh, we just had a session last week because they're 12 weeks long. And um, uh, several weeks ago, one of the participants during, so, so we have content for about 20 minutes and then we go into a small group discussion for 20 minutes and then we come back and debrief as a, as a large group. One of the persons stayed in the main room with me and I just you know went and got coffee and, what, and, and whatever, but when I came back, this participant asked permission to go and take a break. Oh no. Because they felt collapsed. And they started to find that they were alone when I left to go get coffee. Wow. This person asked permission 
to to take care of themselves. Mm. When I got back from getting my coffee, because they started to have a panic attack mm. that they felt all alone. Mm. So their their disorganized seeking yes. was in this place of separation anxiety because yes. I had left and everyone went off into small groups. Yes, yes. And they were all by themselves in the main room. Yes. And they didn't know what to do. Yeah. This is an adult yeah. executive yes. in a workplace organization. Yes. Who is getting a paycheck, has a family, is a mom, who had a panic attack because people went out into breakout rooms. Yeah. And I went to go get coffee. Yeah. And your teaching then allows people to begin to see themselves in this and find themselves in this and to be able to name a little bit of these terrifying and somewhat horrifying and often shameful experiences of being impacted exactly by belonging. Mm. Daniel Siegel, if I recall correctly, talks about the definition of a relationship which is to know and to be known. Yeah. Yeah, I love that so much. It's so beautiful. And indeed, the foundation stone of disorganized attachment, which is shown by the research of Beatrice Beebe, Mm. shows that the foundation stone of disorganized attachment is not being known and not having a sense that being known is possible. What she found with her work with infants and mothers up to the age of four months was that because she, she, she's done 40 years of research and she's tracked the way that mothers and babies interact with one another in a three-minute period. And then she correlates that to later development of attachment style because the regular measurement of attachment style is the infant strange situation, which only takes place once an infant is one year old. So mm-hmm. there haven't been markers before now of pre-one-year-old attachment styles. Mm. But Beatrice Beebe can see this in just one three-minute interaction between a mom and a baby. Of what the attachment style is going to, yes. the prediction of... Yes, she can predict like with 87% accuracy what the attachment style is going to be. <laughs> and Sorry, what and the, just... Yeah, no, it's, a, it's, it's stunning, isn't it? And That's the, completely stunning. And remember, remember what I discovered in episode number one that we did together, which was that even though what happens before the age of three is really important, it does not set us in stone. Yes. We are neuroplastic. We can change. We can grow. We can heal. We can move towards earned secure attachment. Yes. Instead of having to be disorganized or avoidant or ambivalent. So what's coming up for me besides anger, frustration, and despair. And before you go there, <laughs> I just want to say we need to come back to Beatrice Beebe and that foundation stone because I haven't said what it is yet. What's the foundation stone? The Sarah? foundation stone. <laughs> <laughs> then we'll come back to your despair. Thank you. <laughs> the foundation stone is that the baby looks sad yeah. or distressed and the mom looks surprised. Oh, no. Oh, no. But this is not... Or the mom smiles. So the baby doesn't get to be known. Right. And can't predict that they would ever be possible for them to be known. But, okay, this was my point. <laughs> <laughs> now we come to your despair. Yes, which is, this then takes us down the path to anxiety. Yes. Depression. Yes. Hopelessness. Yes. Learned helplessness. Yes. 
It does. And then it does, it does, it does. Trauma. Yes, yes, yes. And then toxic workplace behavior. Yes, it's true. And then what we'll cover in the third episode. <laughs> uh, I'm feeling, uh, so So, do you have, uh, I have my own uh, antidote for despair. Do you have a, 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 an antidote for I'd despair? I'd love to hear your antidote for despair first. Hope. Hope is your antidote for despair. Yeah, so, so um, Archbishop Desmond Tutu asks such a, you know, he was asked such a beautiful question. He was asked, um, what do you do in times of despair? Mm. And his response was, you show your dignity. Mm, that's beautiful. And, you know, for me, it's, it's, it's about hope. Is, is, is hope a panic grief experience? Hope is foundational for human well-being. But I like what, to come back to Ian McGilchrist. Yeah. I love what Ian McGilchrist says about, about hope and about optimism. Mm. He says, optimism is a left hemisphere experience. Pessimism is a right hemisphere experience. The left hemisphere is unrealistic. The right hemisphere is realistic. <laughs> he says, depression is the only thing that actually makes sense in terms of what's really happening in the world, but we need hope, we need optimism in order to survive, in order to have well-being. We need it. He says, so I define myself as a skeptical optimist. That is hilarious. Yes, yes. Yes, I think this goes in the direction of gallows humor. At, at 100%. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. So this takes us to heartbreak. It does. This takes us to heartbreak. If, and surviving heartbreak and being accompanied in heartbreak I, 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 and I, back to our wonderful inside out. Just it, yes. I love that you read that we read each yes. other's minds in, in such a sweet way. Um, joy is ridiculously optimistic. Indeed. To the point where it's irritating. Yes, just like Tigger. <laughs> 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 and someone in class asked me once if that was toxic positivity and I said uh -huh. no that it wasn't yet uh -huh. because it wasn't discounting someone's reality it was just trying to get her needs met mm -hmm. right so she wasn't dismissing him or mm. um, basically gaslighting and what's your definition of gaslighting Sarah by the way oh well my definition of gaslighting is when somebody who has more power than somebody else tells the person that they have more power than that they have made a mistake in how they feel and what they perceive. Why the distinction of power? Because if my son, my, if I'm a mom and I have a five-year-old son and my, my five-year-old son says, Mom, you're wrong. You're, over, you're overreacting. <laughs> It'll obviously make you giggle. Then you'd probably laugh, right? Yeah. Or else you'd go, oh, he's been listening to somebody else, you know, because that's not something a five-year-old would say. Um, or if you're a um if you're a, a boss and an employee says to you, uh, no, you heard that wrong, Th that's very unlikely. Right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, it can happen. Mm -hmm. But it's very unlikely that the 
uh, employee will tell the employer that they're remembering things incorrectly, unless they've got some sort of video or something. And even then, they'd be rocking the boat pretty intensely. Well, I'm still confused about the power dynamic because, so let's say that you say, um, wow, it's really hot in here in the studio, which yeah. it is. <laughs> let's be clear, <laughs> given what I'm wearing. <laughs> um, my whole need to be this fashionista thing is just not working in the summertime in Marin. <laughs> let's be clear. <sighs> um, so, so, um, let, let's say that you say that, that, that it's really hot in the, in the studio and I'm actually freezing cold and I say, no, it's not. What's wrong with you? Well, you have more power because you're the host. Okay. Let's say we're at a park bench. <laughs> <laughs> and same thing happens. But we don't know each other. We know each other. We know each other. Yeah. We're, we're, having, a sam- we're, we're having our cucumber sandwiches uh-huh. um, on a park bench. And I say, it's so hot. And you say, it's so cold. I'm freezing. No. I say, no, it's not. It's, no, it's freezing not. cold here. It's freezing cold here. No, it's not. It's freezing cold here. So I'm trying to imagine... Sarah and Rajkumari on the park bench. This would never happen. This is, this is why you're struggling. But my point is that I define gaslighting as dismissing, discounting, and denying someone's reality. Yes. You concur? Yes, but I add the power piece. So that was really helpful because I'm laughing because when I talk about gaslighting, in my courses, there's some very interesting pushback in terms of how I'm defining it and what Wikipedia is defining it. And there's always this element of manipulation that comes into play in the pushback. And the reality is that, you know, anytime you're dismissing or denying or discounting, that is a form of manipulation, right? So, um, and I have have actually vetted this with my dear friend, LaFawn Davis, um, who I've spoken to you about, um, who is, you know, uh, head of uh, ESG over at Indeed, who agrees with my definition. So that in and of itself makes it right. <laughs> yes! <laughs> <laughs> but talking about gaslighting, and thank you for, for, for validating that, brings me back to, you know, I, I really want to come back to grief in the workplace. I think this is such an important piece. And I think, in, in studying with you and in learning from you, I came to this realization in one moment because of some particular things that you said around grief and effectiveness in the workplace, that burnout actually stems from, and you've already alluded to this multiple times, unmourned grief. Yes. Yes. That overwhelm. Yes. Is unmourned Grief. Yes. Um, I have some more to say about overwhelm. Very interesting thoughts about overwhelm. But before we go there, we'll stay with grief because we've referenced it a couple of times. And bring it into this picture of attachment because it's also very interestingly impacted by what is our attachment style. When we have secure attachment, remember secure attachment is where you're expecting to find partnership in the world. When we have secure attachment, we're going to we're going to carry within us an experience of partnership that allows us to live in a constant state of mourning what is the, the gap between what we wish were true and what's actually true. Wait, say that again, please. Yes. 
when we have secure attachment yes and we're connecting to panic grief yeah what happens is that we have an internalized sense of other so that's what our prediction is that others will be with us we carry them with us in our brains mm. they dec- the the carrying within our brains of an expectation of supported others makes my cortisol less sure makes makes my reactivity to stress less makes my resilience greater mm-hmm. but part of the reason that i have more resiliency is because i have an internalized sense that i am accompanied in the moments when what's happening is not what i wish were happening and and let's let's underscore that accompaniment and presence are the met needs in the panic grief circuit they are so met yes yeah yeah so my ability to be with the world as it is to say oh damn climate crisis happening right now rajkumari is very hot it is <laughs> not supposed to be this temperature in marin county in june in the first days of july right this is this is being with reality as it is. Yeah. Um, this takes me walking with myself to say, yes, the world is not as I wish it were. And that then lets me go. We, we, we spoke in our first episode about plan, do, check, adjust. Yeah. So checking and adjusting our right hemisphere capacities they're the capacity to receive feedback without blaming. Mm-hmm. They're the pass- capacity to integrate feedback without blaming. Mm-hmm. And, and so uh, if, for example, I'm in my avoidant attachment mm-hmm. with you about the heat, then I'll want to blame. That's what avoidant attachment does. Remember how when we were talking about the instrumental brain, the instrumental brain doesn't have the neurons to be able to integrate right. and mourn. So my avoidant attachment with grief takes me right into blame. Blame is the manifestation of avoidant grief. Then I would say... I, I, I want to slow this down. Blame is the manifestation of avoidant grief. Yes. Can, can, can we all just take that in? <laughs> <laughs> Please yes. continue. Yes. So if I'm in my avoidant, then I would say, oh... The, the people who are running this studio, it's too hot. They don't have the air conditioning. That would be the avoidant grief. Wow. And Wow. And then the ambivalent grief would be, oh, my God, Rajkumar is too hot. Oh, uh, uh, uh. There would be the... The anxiety, the anxiety to go to Mike, my producer, yes. and say, hey, Mike, you know what? How much money is it going to take to actually build an air conditioning unit in the next 20 minutes? Yes, yes, right? exactly. Because I, 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 I can't have, well, Raj Kumar or Sarah right. be uncomfortable in this way, and right. I want to make sure that I'm caring for che- yeah. yes. solving for the discomfort of this experience exactly. so I can join with them right. in, in comfort. So these manifest in the workplace. Wow. Blame manifests in the workplace? Anxiety and ineffective problem-solving manifests in the workplace. Yeah. And the, the more that our leaders can model for us and the more that our coworkers also yeah. have integrated grief, yeah. where they're going, dang, I'm sad about this, and then keeping going, because that's resilience, is like stopping to nod, take, 
take account of, take acknowledge what's true, and then moving forward with the best possible way forward. Yeah. Our brains are wired to belong mm-hmm. and to form relationships. Mm-hmm. The definition of a relationship is to know and be known. When I am able to mourn, then I am understanding what my workforce is experiencing. Mm-hmm. And when I can model that mourning to the workforce in whatever capacity, right, my communication, my all hands, a one-on-one meetings, whatever it is, yes. I am completely in relationship with them now. Yes. I am able to model an accompanied state of panic grief. Yes. And that moves me into creating safety. Yes. And you had mentioned uh, when we were driving about a particular experience that you had with a company that was doing downsizing. Yeah. Would you be willing to speak about that for a moment? I think this illustrates this so beautifully. So I was working with uh, a a smaller company, um, under 1,000 people, and um, I was working with the C-suite team in preparation for the RIF the following... The reduction in force. Thank you. uh, The following week. And one of the things that I emphasized was if we don't include resonant language, the right hemisphere, then your workforce is going to feel abandoned, is going to feel isolated and distrusting completely. So we went through a two-hour activity. Um, I ended up helping to, um, you know, give my, my, my edits for resonant language in the copy that was all going to go out. And it was the best-case scenario for a worst-case situation. Um, the compliments that uh, the CEO received in delivering um, there were tears, there was gratitude. Um, it was very, very surprising for the, C- the C-suite team um, of how things unfolded in a very, very positive way. Entire workplaces, everything about the workplace can be transformed with this material. I mean, I can just speak personally. You know, coming from my background, I, 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 you, you know so much of my history. Um, there was a point where I had done so much personal work up until, you know, 2013. And um, I, I remember coming to a place of getting really confused because I had just stumbled across NVC. Mm. And I was like, what the hell is this? <laughs> What is nonviolent communication? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what is nonviolent communication? What are, what are feelings and needs? Like, what is this, right? Um, I, I remember having to, you know, they have those, those, de- those, the, those decks, those cards with feelings and needs. I remember, you know, being partnered at the time and having to use the deck in every conversation that involved conflict because I did not know what my feelings were and I did not, not know what my needs right. were. And I had to go through and then I had to pick the first five and I would like, you know, trim it down to three and then we would have a conversation. I mean, it was exhausting and it took hours to right. do this. <laughs> right. um, but it saved my life. Mm-hmm. The, the ways in which I show up, people say, who know me now, 
that when I tell them stories of who I was 25 years ago, they don't believe me. Mm. They just don't believe me. They said, you, you, I used to be, you know, a raging alcoholic mm. to the point where I was blackout drinking. Mm. I used to uh, be incredibly violent. Wow. Um, I put my fist through walls, through doors. Uh, I've punched cars, dented them. I have, um, I'm getting emotional. Um, I've broken, you know, uh, uh, back in the day when we had telephone, you know, handsets, I, I bro broke that in two. I've broken my glasses so many times. Thank goodness for contacts. Um, and in starting this company 10 years ago and doing this trauma work, right, looking at the inner child, the inner voice, and, and, and working with that, um, and then through your work of learning resonant language, it's very uncomfortable for me when I find myself in a transactional conversation mm. where I only used to be in a transactional conversation. That's all I knew. Yeah. In fact, not only did I only know that, I only knew two different feelings. Rage, not rage. Mm. That's all I knew. And just to come back to this, you know, protection. Yeah. And just to acknowledge I'm proud of that. Like, thank God you had that. Mm. Because otherwise you would have been destroyed. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah. So I think we didn't cover, thank you for listening to my story. I loved your story. Disorganized attachment. I think we, we didn't talk about the disorganized attachment and how that. Of grief. Yeah, exactly. So let's turn to taking a quick look at disorganization and grief. We know that disorganization makes things unpredictable. Mm -hmm. So part of disorganized grief is the breakthrough grief, where you're functioning, 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 functioning. Somebody says something, it comes out of left field, and all of a sudden you're, you're, you can't contain yourself. You have to go to the restroom and wait until the tears pass. And you're sitting in the restroom, you've got the stall closed, and you've got tears running down. It's making your clothes wet, and you're just like, what the fuck is going on? Yeah. Why have I suddenly fallen into the pit of despair? That is disorganized grief. It comes directly from oh. trauma. And another way to have disorganized grief is to have no grief at all. And instead of... Ah, that makes a lot of yes. sense. Yes. So, so to be like a robot or to be uh, cold. When, especially if someone's having emotion? No. Or if someone's having emotion or the world is not as you wish it were. Ah, that's helpful. Okay, yeah. So, for example, parents who go into the silent treatment mm -hmm. when their child is not as they wish their child were mm -hmm. or their spouse is not as they wish their spouse were, mm -hmm. that's disorganized grief. Yeah. I will not feel it. I will not. I will. I will take a personal stand against the world not being as I wish it were. But then this just, I mean, this is just a cycle of then I don't get to be seen, I don't get to be heard, I don't get to be known, and then I fall back into grief, and then there's even more isolation. And then, and then you're there's passing trauma. disorganization onto your children, and you're passing trauma onto your spouse or partner. So I had an epiphany about 20 minutes ago in our conversation when you started to kind of go through the different grief um, attachment pieces. Resonant language is what repairs heartbreak. 
It does. It's true. Resonant language repairs heartbreak, and knowing about trauma repairs heartbreak. Knowing about someone's trauma, knowing about one's trauma, or knowing how to work with trauma? Knowing how to work with trauma. Knowing that trauma is, in essence, being having a part of us caught in time yeah. that doesn't move forward. I often think of this as, like, you know how you can look at a river and you can see a, a dead tree partly up out of the water? They call them snags coming mm -hmm. up out of the water. Mm -hmm. And you see the way the water current, you can kind of see the ripples going behind the snag. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is what it's like to be caught with trauma. Like a part of our attention remains we're supposed to be way down the river, but a part of our trauma remains on the snag. It's that thread that's been caught somewhere, and now yeah. it's unraveling the sweater, and it just continues to unravel the sweater as, as, yeah, as you, you keep, continue. Yeah, you keep going, and you have less and less life energy. Yep. With heartbreak in particular, you have less and life, less life energy as you travel, and you've left behind a part of yourself in that moment of betrayal or loss or death or divorce or job separation or yeah this i mean this is all about loss of a friend self heartbreak yes betrayal is self heartbreak betrayal is very interestingly betrayal is kind of a corollary of hate and when we look at hate in the brain yeah it's exactly like love it just takes the betrayal curve it's like it's it's almost identical. Hate is almost identical to love in the human brain. It just takes a curve to the, I think, the amygdala to acknowledge the, the betrayal that's turned the love into hate. So you said you wanted to come to overwhelm. I do, because what's so interesting about overwhelm is that it's a sign that our disgust circuit is out of whack. Oh, my God, what? <laughs> come on, Sarah. All these curveballs. That makes so much sense. Yes, exactly. Overwhelm is the inability to have an internal no that becomes an external no that changes our experience of being overstuffed. Uh, you know, so we can yeah. talk about attachment and disgust in the workplace Let's if do that. you'd like. Yes, but I think that it's absolutely it's absolutely something. necessary. No, I was going to make a joke. <laughs> That was sarcastic, which is which is in the play circuit, which is basically <laughs> the yellow triggered zone of the play circuit when you're being sarcastic. Anyway, if you want to learn more, come to Understanding Humans at Work. But disgust is about boundaries. And I want to remind everybody that I added disgust to yeah. Panksepp's systems, Panksepp's circuits. Right. And we did some research. We, what we found with that particular circuit is that disgust actually secretes serotonin. So it's a how interesting, right? We 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 have that yeah, in the in yeah. the in the um in, in the slide in the slide, yeah, yeah. So, um, if we have healthy disgust, yeah, and we have secure attachment, then our disgust is working well. In other words, our disgust is um is Letting us know what really works for us and what doesn't. What is too much and what is what and where are our edges? Where do we need to stop? What are, what are our boundaries? Where do we 
you know, how much overtime are we willing to work that, that works for our body? Mm-hmm. How much... Uh, are we willing to put on our plate? Yeah, how much are we willing to put on our plate? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Are we delegating? Are we delegating? Yes, indeed. So the more that we have a healthy attachment in our disgust circuit, the more choice we have and the more happiness we have and the more protection mm-hmm. we have. And the more um, a sense of autonomy we have. Yeah. Now, as we start to come off of secure attachment, then we begin to move towards avoidance. The move toward avoidance with disgust is terrifying. Because as we move away from the self and we stop having a self, we move into society's ideas about disgust. Can I guess? Yes. Is it contempt? It's genocide. Contempt is on the seeking circuit and it's predatory aggression, and we have not oh, talked about that yet. Th- that's sorry, 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 sorry. I'm just processing because I'm actually feeling disgusted. Yeah. Uh, my whole stomach is really upset right now. Yeah. Um, please continue. Thank so you. there are word categories in human language that are meant to be used to help to keep us safe. But dictators and people who are on the far right use these words to take over our abandoned disgust circuit when we move, when we move into avoidance. We're leaving our bodies behind. We're leaving our own boundaries behind. And we become an empty husk waiting to be filled by society's disgust. So there's all kinds of manifestations of this, including systemic racism, including genocide, including being opposed to migration, including believing that the um, Hungarian nation should be made up of white people and that it should be a felony to help Syrian refugees. When there is a gun-violent when gun violence is present in a mass shooting at schools, is that avoidant disgust? Or does that go back to the seeking avoidant? Um, you know, with seeking, you have predatory aggression, which we haven't spoken about. Yeah, no, I, right. And predatory aggression is, is, a, uh, is the hunting circuit. So people killing other people in such a situation I see. is a disorganized manifestation of predatory aggression. Is predatory aggression the technical term for hatred? Hate, no. Okay. Hatred would come closer to rage. Okay. Predatory aggression is cruelty, bullying. Um, I mean, every manifest, almost every manifestation of predatory aggression is disorganized in human society because we don't hunt much for meat anymore. I don't know. I need the mind-blown emoji at this moment. (sighs) So predatory aggression can be stimulated by this movement into disgust. They are linked. Of course. So if... So you mentioned a school shooting. Many of the school shootings are coming from childhood trauma. For sure, yeah. 
but many of the, for example, mosque shootings, those are coming from mobilized, uh, disorganized disgust mixed with predatory aggression. Because then you have a targeted group that's been targeted as all of those words that we use for um, animals that we don't want to be around. For example, vermin or something like that. Those are words that politicians use to mobilize disgust against entire swaths of people. Is this science taught in the political arena on how to speak? Um, This is modeled by people who are on the far right. Um, And people write books about it. And do research about the way in which the use of this speech, Mm -hmm. which is so common on a news network like Fox News Network, Mm -hmm. that it actually Mm -hmm. transforms the human brain, making a more intense link to the to the avoidant disgust that then results in violence and um, and all kinds of uh, very terrifying results. Yeah. I was about to share something about my mother, and then I realized the potential of defamation, so I will not. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, yeah. Okay. We'll just keep going. Okay. So, it's scary. That is uh, a term that uh, I would not be using. It's terrifying. It's terrifying. It is. Uh, so, 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 I want to just take us back to something we said in the first episode very early on about sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Right, right. Uh, I'll just pause there because yeah. I think that's all, that's all I need to say. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Um, so we, we, we have avoidant disgust. Uh-huh. So now we go over to the... To ambivalent. Yep. So as we move into the ambivalence again, there's this, um, this... This effort to this ineffectual effort to join for stability. Right, right. Yes. So this then comes to the um, to to the negative side of belonging. This is the in out group. This yes, is the exactly. bullying. Exactly. This is um, so. Where do the 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 le- where, where, where's all the legislation against uh, trans and 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 L- the LGBT community in the last eighteen months? Where, where does that fall? That falls completely in the area of um, and see. This is where there's this sort of another level of horrifying, uh, which is also a word linked to the disgust circuit. Mm-hmm. Um, another level of horrifying. Uh, dysfunction with in-group, out-group. Um, as we come over into, uh, um, as as disgust is mobilized mm-hmm. against swaths of people, mm-hmm. then there's this weird thing that's happening with oxytocin. Okay where oxytocin yeah. is no longer a good thing, it's a bad thing. Totally. Because it creates the in-groups. Yep. And whenever you have in-groups, you necessarily have to have out-groups. Right. So it's a kind of a double whammy that can happen with disgust. I want to get to disorganized attachment and, 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 and disgust. And any time it results in harm, then we're moving into disorganization. 
So give me an example of, of harm. Genocide. Yeah. Okay. Or, or what about what about when the the Florida situation with going into the the gay club and, and shooting fifty people? Terrifying. Terrifying. Yeah. Same thing. It's genocide. Yeah. Genocide. Okay. Um, I, I just want to say that, first of all, I want to throw up constantly, like for the last 20 minutes of this conversation. And that brings me to, um, my stomach is really upset. Um, where is my, I lost my, I lost my train of thought. Do you need any acknowledgement yeah. of, of horror at what humans are capable of doing with one another? Does it just take you out with grief and <sighs> yes and 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 love for all the trans and lesbian and gay and Intersex and everybody, then non-binary everybody, just loving all the people, all the people, and wanting them to be safe. Yeah. Um, I mean, it really brings a whole new light on this concept of inclusion. Yeah. Right? How life, not even life saving, not even life serving, but life essential. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to. Um, I'm staining my shirt now for my tears. This has been phenomenal. This this conversation has been uh, insightful, eye-opening, um, turbulent, <laughs> <laughs> um, and just incredibly poignant. I want to just kind of rewind us a little bit to maybe about 20... I, I want to rewind us a little bit uh, in the conversation to when we were talking about in uh, in out group mm -hmm. bullying mm -hmm. genocide those kinds of things um, and kind of uh, spotlight what we're going to talk about in our next conversation which is about your book mm. with Roxy Manning what's the title of the book the anti racist heart a handbook for self compassion that's incredible I'm so excited to dive on into that one talk to you soon Sarah thank you Ashley. That was Rajkumari Neogi and Sarah Payton. Up next, inside the talent attraction process at Indeed, the world's largest job search engine, with Misty Gaither, VP of DEIB. Visit us at podcast.ibelong.com for all the ways to watch and listen to our show. You've been listening to Then, Now, and Tomorrow, an I Belong original series produced by Flowship. Today's episode was executive produced by Rajkumari Neogi. Produced by Mike Giordani. Edited by Ramiro Gava. Mixed by Alex Roses. Original music by Dario Valderrama. Production assistance by Tiari Boutet and Pili Melendez. Thank you so much for tuning in. 